Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. I'm so excited to welcome this guitarist and composer extraordinaire. She's the composer behind Cherish the Day, 20s on BET, and a Black Lady sketch show on HBO. She's also contributed music to projects including How to Train Your Dragon 2, the TV series Dear White People, Kingsman, The Secret Service, and Oprah's scripted drama Greenleaf. She's hugely responsible for the creation of the Composer's Diversity Collective, and the composer is Amanda Jones. Hello, hello. Nice to meet you and see you. <laughs> Likewise. So Amanda, when did you start playing guitar? Started playing guitar around 14, 15. It was later in life. And that's like the instrument I love the most. <laughs> I started playing like piano when I was three and like clarinet around 10. But guitar was the one thing. A friend just let me borrow her guitar one day, I think in middle school. And um, yeah, that was like, it kind of changed my life. <laughs> was there like a record you heard or something that made you want to to play? Um, I mean, ever since I was young, uh, I've always been fascinated by the guitar. I think it wasn't something that, like, my parents wanted me playing right away. <laughs> um, and it was like, I grew up listening to, like, The Temptations and a lot of, like, Motown because of my dad. And that is, like, an instrument that really stands out to me the most when I just, like, think about those songs. I love the guitar tone or, like, Mavis Staples, Pop Staples. I think it just gives like really cool R&B, like old school R&B, like Motown songs, like such swag. <laughs> so I fell in love with it. And um, it took some time for me to kind of arrive at playing that instrument, but it felt so natural. And when you were learning, did you have a teacher? Did you just hear these songs and learn by ear? Uh, so initially I was just learning all the songs by ear. I discovered like Jimi Hendrix at the same time. <laughs> And a lot of like old school or like, you know, uh, classic rock. And I would just like print off the tabs and just learn all these songs. And yeah, I was like obsessed with like the 60s and 70s kind of right when I was learning how to play guitar. And yeah, so I guess I was just like, you know, by ear a lot of the times and with tabs. And then in college, I decided to take classical guitar lessons. And that kind of just like helped round out the whole guitar theory thing. <laughs> that was quite nice. Right. And you went to Vassar. So did you go in with like the intention of... Uh, no, <laughs> I didn't. So um, so my family is in healthcare, actually. And so like my brother studied like neuroscience and I was intending to be a chemist. So I went in as a chemistry, you know, major. And I have all this like experience, like working in labs, like it's all through high school and doing all these really amazing internships, like to do the medical field track thing. And then once I arrived to campus, I was just blown away by the music department. And I initially was going to do a chemistry major and a music minor, but it just became a music major altogether. And, uh, and yeah, I've been pursuing it ever since and doing it, which is pretty exciting. And it took a little bit of time for my family to come around <laughs> to the idea. But, um, yeah, it's all working itself out, so which is great. Yeah. 
on that note, did you learn about, or did you have an idea about where you want to go after school in terms of taking your music? Um, so initially it was all about performance. So I formed a band when I was in college and I just wanted to be like the world's coolest rock band ever. (laughs) And so, uh, yeah, after doing like the music composition degree, I moved to Los Angeles. I graduated in 2010, moved to Los Angeles and, uh, we just started like touring and performing as much as possible. And, you know, yeah, my onset initially with the music path, it wasn't necessarily film scoring. It was mostly like live performance and creating original music and doing that whole track. But um, I think as many people know, being in a band is quite challenging. <laughs> it's so rewarding, like from a creative perspective and just creating music for your soul. But it's like challenging at times um, to create that like crossover to like create music for the masses. <laughs> So it's really something that's so personal for myself. It's but so let's see. Uh, in 2014, so after like four years in LA, kind of like grinding and touring, and we toured with bands like of Montreal and Deerhoof, um, Ko Dot, just like a bunch of you know, just experimental, fun, rock, colorful rock bands. Yeah. So after about four years, I was like, okay, I need to do something <laughs> alongside performance. And I was like, what else can I do? And so. You know, living in LA, you're just surrounded by so many film and TV creatives. It's really easy to kind of just tap into slash get sucked into that industry. <laughs> and so around that time, it had been four years and I was like, what can I do? I was considering grad school. I was like, what can I do to really kind of round out this like life and music? And so I decided down the path of doing composing for film and TV. And so took some online classes with the Berkeley College of Music just as a refresher um, and to kind of reorient myself and remember all that theory and harmony. And that immediately plugged me into like the Southern Californian network that they have, which I like immediately I worked with on Zimmer. I was like a music production assistant. So like Berkeley was like the facilitator for that connection. And then I uh, worked with Henry Jackman. And then shortly thereafter, John Powell. And then this is all kind of remote control universe. Right. Did you start doing like a runner internship over there? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it was the runner internship. That's pretty classic <laughs> and storied. Uh, and yeah. We've all carried water jugs for building too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then, um, but then shortly thereafter, I was hired at John Powell Studio, which is pretty amazing to have something come from it, which is because it's such a rat race. <laughs> and everyone has the same intention of like trying to get, you know, some sort of gig. So, yeah, working with John Powell was an eye-opening experience. Um, That's where I also met Jermaine Franco. And, you know, the first time I met her, I was just immediately in awe. (laughs) Because this is so cool to see, like, another woman in a studio space. It's just not very common. I think that is an interesting point, too. Because when I was at Remote Control doing an internship for a month or whatever... I think I only saw three women on campus, four actually, including Hans's assistant. I know. <laughs> all assistants and only one composer, I think, at the time. Yeah, it's pretty, you know, numbers are staggering. I mean, there's tons of, you know, female composers, but um, to be able to, you know, arrive or reach certain positions that are positions of power, it takes uh, a lot of, I don't know, <laughs> it's challenging. <laughs> um, but... But yeah, so Jermaine Franco was like this beacon of light and amazing friend and mentor. And and so you know, I just had just many long chats with her and I just fell in love with her basically. <laughs> but not really. <laughs> but I was just so inspired by her. 
And she had this really adorable son who was like a genius. And I was like, oh, this is like the coolest person ever. And I just so inspired by her and her like career trajectory. And then after that, let's see. Oh yeah, I worked with Michael Levine. I think people know him most as like a television composer. He did Siren on Freeform and uh, Cold Case like a while ago. Um, and a lot of other television series in between. And the Kit Kat commercial. Oh my gosh. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which is so great. But he was so helpful and really kind of being a guiding light also. He just like showed me so much. <laughs> and he was like willing to like share his instrument library. And he was just like so, so helpful and like so willing to like just like guide me, which is really nice. And then, so yeah, so just between those internships and between working in these studios, it was just like those formative years were just so important to kind of understanding like the inner workings of just how to, you know, create a really great score for something for a project and like, you know, from like, like just the artistic side of it. And then in 2016, I decided to, or I got the opportunity to work at Lionsgate in their television music department. So I was going from this creative, like composer side to a like really intense, like administrative creative executive position. But what was really cool about it um, was that I was on that side of things, I was kind of handling it from like an A&R perspective and I was responsible for like hiring composers, um, music editors, music supervisors, um, and specifically within the TV department. And I was working with Russell Zeker, who's like the head of television music there at Lionsgate still. And that team, I did that for two years. And that was just huge understanding like the other side of it, like what it takes to, how, like, how do we hire our composers? Like, what is like the perfect composer for the perfect gig, for the perfect show? And so it was like just amazing to like interface with like showrunners, producers, directors on that side of it to kind of just understand like what goes on scenes and kind of like the crux of why certain composers are, are chosen for a project and it's really just a personality match because everyone's very very talented so it's very competitive but when yeah when you have these composer meetings it's like we're really trying to like you know just match them up with the perfect project and yeah and doing that you know, I definitely discover there's certain biases, <laughs> unconscious biases that exist, like why are certain composers chosen for certain things? And so, you know, while I was there, I was definitely kind of made it my mission to, you know, try when we did have any kind of composer brief to include as many like diverse voices as possible, as many women as possible. That way it's not just like five names that are all white men <laughs> being put up for the same projects. And I was like, hey, we should really kind of like push on this. So, I mean, while I was there, you know, I can't give myself credit for any of this, but as like a team, it was really great. We were we brought on Chris Bowers for Dear White People. We had Matthew Head on Greenleaf. Uh, we had a producer named Pooh Bear on Step Up High Water, which was a YouTube Red series. And yeah, we just had a, other, a bunch of other like amazing writers and composers of just like all different backgrounds and voices. And we actually did bring Jermaine Franco on for Vita, which was a really wild full circle moment. <laughs> Be able to like help facilitate that. And that was for stars. So, and, you know, Jermaine Frank was like the first Latina woman to ever be like staffed on a show for stars slash Lionsgate. So that's like, pretty crazy. And I was really happy to kind of be like, you know, there for that. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so then that was two years of that between 2016 to 2018. And let's see. Oh, in 2018, I, you know, got the opportunity to score my first feature film. So while I was doing all of this stuff between 2015 and 2018, working in you know, music studios and working at like a 
production studio, I was always writing and creating. I was always doing short films. I wasn't getting very much sleep. And I was always, you know, working with up-and-coming directors. I did this one program through Project Involve with ASCAP. I did it twice. And where they kind of pair you up with a director, an up-and-coming director for their short film. And that was, that was an incredible experience. I think that program is still active. And I think minority composers should definitely explore that. It's an opportunity um, that's available to them. And yeah, a lot of the composers, I mean, a lot of the directors that I worked with then are now like either doing their first feature films with a major studio or like directing their first TV series or creating their first TV series. I remember Marvin was like in the 2016 or 2017 class and he just did Hentified on Netflix. It's just incredible. You just like a couple years later, you just never know. People are going to kind of blossom. So yeah, I think it's really important just as a sidebar to like find your director and kind of grow with them. Especially if you can do these programs, especially like the Sundance program. But yeah, so in 2018, I know I'm kind of like just going on <laughs> about just like, you know, timeline. Oh, good. But uh, so yeah, so in 2018, I quit my job at Lionsgate. My mom cried because she was like, no, this is such a great job. <laughs> and it was like my first like nine to five gig that was like music industry related that she like approved. <laughs> and so, but you know, you have to take that leap of faith to do the things you love, which is like, you know, being an artist. So 2018 did my first feature film. I was like so excited about it. I finished it in like two weeks. And I was like, oh no, I just gave my two weeks notice and I finished this film in two weeks. What do I do now? And so it just kind of put me in a position to like sink or swim. And so the rest of 2018, I was just kind of hustling and doing as many short films as possible. And then by the end of 2018, I was able to work, do the pilot for 20s which was kind of like my first huge like commercial thing. And that has kind of been like the jump off, like the catalyst for so much, you know, since then, which is pretty amazing. So 2019 was pretty crazy. And all that stuff is coming out in 2020. Yay. <laughs> sure. Did you find that time though, um, when you said you were hustling, was it, was it challenging? Did you feel like not having that day job as like a safety net kind of pushed you further in a way that you don't think would have been possible otherwise? Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I think the, yeah, the day job, it's important. If it's, I think it's always important to have something like kind of keep everything in like linear, like within your field. So I know a lot of people, you know, have a day job that's like outside of their field, which is totally fine. It pays the bills, but I think it just kind of helps from like a focus perspective to like just keep everything even if you're like working at like a like a sink house or something like that and you're a composer or if you're working with another composer and that's like your full-time job, I think that's just really important to kind of like, you know, keep your mind in that space and that ecosystem, musical ecosystem and entertainment industry ecosystem. But I always have this kind of feeling inside of me that's like, I have to, you know, pursue the thing that I love and I'm passionate about. Yeah, I'll do whatever it takes <laughs> to like kind of achieve that. So Having the, I definitely missed having a lot of time in the early days from like 2010 <laughs> to 2014, like having a full day, sending emails, being myself, being an artist. Um, but I knew the importance of like working in the industry. It kind of like helped align myself, kind of understand what's happening in the now and the, like the film and music and entertainment industry, because you don't really know what it's like unless you're like working in it. And then you realize it's like, oh, wow, this is like what's actually happening. And this is like how this ecosystem operates. And let me like get it together and kind of just like tap into this. But yeah, I think 
like for me, it was like a crazy schedule. Like I wake up at seven, work all day, probably end around like five or something. But then I would go to shows because a big part of my position was like A&R. So I get free tickets to like check out bands. And I was like, oh, this is so much fun. Like such and such label would invite me to a showcase. And so I was always doing that. And then on the days I wasn't doing that, which was like a really long day, I would just come home at five, like take an hour nap, eat something, and then like work from like eight until like two in the morning on music. And it's just like, and then go to bed, like wake up at seven. And it was like a crazy like cycle. And that was like very scheduled to make sure I was always like time into, you know, myself and my music. And I was moving forward and not becoming stagnant because I was at a day job, you know? So I think, you know, calendar reminders are very important to like (laughs) keep moving things forward. Yeah, for sure. I mean, was there any moment where that doesn't seem like super sustainable. Uh, did you, did either job suffered like musically or, or at Lionsgate? Um, you know, I don't think so. I think I did it as long as I could without it diminishing like my performance there. So I feel like a solid two years of this grueling schedule was kind of like that. This is it. (laughs) This is where it ends. And it was kind of like serendipitous that I was offered my first feature film, you know, through that. So But yeah, I think two years is long enough at any kind of corporate space. Even if you're in the corporate space and you want to be there, I think that's when that's about the time you're supposed to be like leveling up to the next thing. Um, So yeah, it was crazy. It was a crazy thing. I I don't know if I could do it now, but probably if I had to, but I don't know. I feel like when you kind of put yourself in that mode of thinking, that's like what you're so passionate about is like life or death. (laughs) I think you just do it and I think it's kind of an obsession maybe. (laughs) But yeah, it's challenging, but you, I just love it. Right. And so when you left, or I guess even while you were there, you, I assume you have like a little home studio set up and you <laughs> just kept like building upon it. How much tech stuff did you need to get? Or like, did you feel like you you had everything you needed from a technical standpoint to to finish these films? Um. Yeah. I mean, I felt like, well, what was funny was, so Michael Levine, he gifted me, <laughs> and I think he does this for everyone. Um, that like works with him, his instrument library, which was like six terabytes of software. And so I didn't even have enough hard drive space to like house that. (laughs) And I remember that being kind of like a financial hurdle. I was like, oh no, I'm getting like these free (laughs) instrument libraries. Can't afford to buy all these drives. Or so um, it took some time to save to like, I just upgraded to like a, like a Mac Pro. And then, because I was using my laptop for doing a lot of composing early days. And then, um, so I upgraded to a Mac pro, then they have those like hard drive bins or base. So I like just ordered a bunch of like, I think I have like a four terabyte, like hard drive. That's just like super slow, but like, that's just like for the extra stuff that I don't need right away. And then I have like the solid state drive for like, what's like on, what has like my operating system and houses a couple other things. And I have a couple other solid state drives for other things, <laughs> their project files. <laughs> But yeah, it took some time to be able to like afford this this thing to like house all this music that was gifted to me. So that was like the big tool. And then when I was at Lionsgate, I discovered Machine and I kind of, from Native Instruments, and I kind of fell in love with a lot of their sounds and textures. I mean, yeah, I feel like there's definitely like a financial hurdle in the beginning to like kind of acquire all the equipment you need, like just like your hardware, like speakers, interface, your microphone, whatever instrument you play, making sure it's maintained. But yeah, you just like prioritize it. Like I wasn't going on vacations or anything. I wasn't doing anything fun. All my like resources were going towards like equipment and gear and just maintaining it and making sure it's perfect and making sure I remain competitive in my field. Cause ultimately you're kind of going up against like, uh, 
you know, some of the big guys, you know. <laughs> so you got to make sure that your setup sounds as great as it possibly can. And it's important to invest in that stuff. Yeah, that's a good point to be. I mean, I feel like if your stuff doesn't sound not as good as Hans Zimmer or John Powell necessarily, but just. Yeah. I mean, or- even just from a mix point, just like if it doesn't feel like you could put on a playlist and it feels natural. Mm-hmm. Then- you're really going to suffer. Exactly. So just learning all of your gear and just like playing around with compressors and just making it sound bigger and better. (laughs) But yeah. So uh, going forward, I mean, you've done a really great job of trying, uh, of while furthering your own career of trying to help other composers of diverse backgrounds. Where do you think that interest and that devotion to helping others came from? I mean, I think it's just um, kind of innate. (laughs) Um, because I think it's just really important to be an activist just in general, especially when you, when there's like an apparent disparity that exists like in the field. So whether it's like, um, I think in a lot of fields, you know, but specific to film music, like the numbers are staggering and it's something I kind of realized while I was working at Lionsgate, being in that position to hire composers as I just wanted to do more. So, you know, working with the Composers Diversity Collective, it allows me to kind of continue to have that role of just like kind of like seeking out talent and sharing them with the world. <laughs> and I think it's just like um just really important that like more voices are being pitched. It's funny, like unconscious bias is really powerful. There was like this Harvard business review article that was all about just like unconscious bias and hiring. And for example, if you have like 10 applicants and like nine of them are blue and one of them is purple. Like just subconsciously, you'll be like, oh, that purple one's like an outlier. Like why, why would I hire that one? And so, and just to kind of make this more, less abstract, like usually it's like, it'd be like nine white men <laughs> and like one minority person in a, in a pitch or in a, like it just pitching for composers, you know, for a television show. But if you just increase it by, you know, another fold. So if there's like two minority composers and then like eight like white male composers that increases the chances so many more so much more for one of those two minority composers to to be selected because it doesn't seem like such a strange thing on this like talent pool list and that's just a study that's used all across the board or all the, all different industries but yeah it's really important to kind of like you know bolster the community like kind of i think the most important thing about the composers composers diversity collective is that with our meetings, like just kind of knowing of our own presence is so powerful, knowing that our community exists. Because I think a lot of us are the only minority composer in our respective spaces. Like for if we're working for another composer, we might be like the only one that's in that studio or the only one that's in this office. And so you feel so alone, you feel very disconnected and, and you, it feels like a very individual struggle. But when we all come together and kind of building awareness of each other, it's like so powerful and it's a community that we can draw on. So I feel like first and foremost, it's just beautiful to know that that we all exist in LA and all over the world. And it's a community that's very, very strong and we're all very talented. So just like building awareness of each other and then two, like creating opportunity. I'm definitely like leveraging, you know, all the contacts that I've, you know, acquired over the years, especially at Lionsgate, all the different studios to like facilitate these like open dialogues and events at the studio. So we had one at Netflix, I think last year. That was amazing. And it was this really beautiful, I did a presentation kind of showing them like the numbers, like the current state of the industry and what we hope to achieve. And like my presentation was like, here are the numbers. 
Okay, the second part of the presentation is like, everyone stand up and introduce yourself. And it was just really fun. I don't know if you were there <laughs> for that, Matthew. Um, I wasn't there for that one, no. Oh, I've was, been to uh, yeah, the Skydance one recently. Oh, good. The, the only one, I guess, this year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that was just really great because it's all about just like getting to know people. And like Hollywood is just so like face-to-face and very personal. And so I think it's hilarious that my presentation was literally like, hey, here are the numbers in 2017. This is how many white men were hired, and this is how many white females were hired, and this is how many POC males were hired, POC females were hired, and it's just like the numbers, the pie gets like smaller and smaller. And I was like laughing during the presentation because it's like it's so bad. <laughs> and then the second half of the presentation is like, okay, everyone stand up, introduce yourselves. And it was just so beautiful to go around the room that took up the rest of like the presentation time. And then there was a whole mixer after that where it's like people like stood up and just like, you know, I had prepped everyone initially beforehand to be like, be prepared to say it in like three seconds or less, like your name and what you're working on and, or like your, what instrument you play or something like that. And everyone like stuck to it and they were, it was so beautiful. And there's people from all over the world and just like all walks of life, <laughs> all different ages. And yeah, it was really amazing. And so it just kind of became this really like beautiful familial thing. And I feel like it's something Netflix has never ever experienced. It's like, I think it's really important to kind of break down those weird barriers where if your friend group isn't diverse, you know, you kind of just make up what you think about other races, cultures, and something like that. So based on like media. So that was just a beautiful opportunity to kind of just like break down stereotypes, you know, people have. And that's a really big part of the collective, which is to like dispel any like conceived ideas about what you think someone can do with their music based on what they look like, which is like so ridiculous, but people do it. And yes, you can probably speak to if whatever your culture may be, as like a African-American female from Virginia, I can probably speak to like the Virginia scene, like the Neptunes, woo! Or like, um, you know, just different cultures. There's a richness to that, you know, wherever you grew up. But at the same time, we all went to like the same schools. We all know music theory. We can do so many things. And there's like a, we can do so much more beyond the scope of our individual cultures. And it's important for people to like recognize that. So yeah. <laughs> I mean, even the Neptunes right there, just it's crazy when you think about Pharrell and Chad Hugo's different backgrounds. And I know. That comes together and makes something that greater than either of them. I know. They're pretty amazing. Um, but but yeah, so I think it's it's so important. I just did a panel recently with Comic-Con, actually. And I was like the only black person on the panel. And I was just stuff like, yeah, I feel like you have to be an activist, you know, alongside our workload, just because it's like we want to keep pushing things forward. And if you if you aren't, it's just irresponsible. <laughs> Especially now, there needs to be change. Yes, very much so. On that note, so a lot of these types of events have been with the the studios or people at the, um, I guess, at the studio level. Do you find that the studio has much say in hiring the composer, or is that still a lot on the director too, or? So, yeah, so it depends. So the studio has a lot of pull, especially with like first-time directors that aren't really sure who they want to work with. And especially in TV. So um, like television directors are just really responsible for their individual episodes. It's really the showrunner that, you know, could bring in someone or someone they've been working with previously. But I mean, having been in that role, you know, there's a lot of sway that can happen from the studio perspective. So that's definitely like a space that needs to be like tapped into to make sure that they have names at the ready from all different backgrounds to like, you know, support that production and staff it. 
And that goes like beyond just music. It's just like editors, picture editors and cinematographers and casting. And just on so many levels, it, if you're not proactive about your hiring choices, you'll just end up with a production that's like predominantly white. <laughs> yeah. My friend Daniel actually mentioned that it seems like, or at least from like the outsider perspective, that there is a lot of change happening because I feel like we are seeing more people of color on screen, but mm-hmm. behind the screen, there's still a lot of work to be done. Yes. And still on screen too. Yes. Yeah, it's it's a crazy thing. And um, yeah, there was an article that recently resurfaced, or I, think, I can't remember if it's brand new, but there was like this Project Greenlight with Matt Damon a couple of years ago <laughs> and how he was kind of like mansplaining to... Effie Brown about like how diversity only means in front of the camera and not behind the camera. And uh, she was like, that's just not true. And he was like, it is true. And it was like his program and his like accelerated program for directors. And, you know, she was like the only person to kind of like stand up against him. And then she wasn't hired for like years after that. But now it's like, now it's like totally different. You know, it's, it's kind of scary that just, you know, people in a position of power just not that long ago, like three, four years ago can really just embarrass minorities <laughs> like on TV and just like make them feel just I don't know so like minuscule and think that their opinions are just like null and void and that they don't know anything because they're new but it's just like speaking just from like a sociology perspective it's just like I don't know there's just so much like work to do yeah it's crazy yeah I don't know there's so much to talk about about it but yeah it's like staggering just like people's paradigms when it comes to like unconscious bias or like racism and hiring and it's it's like a lot of work to do to kind of just break those down or just people who are willing to help but don't know where to start, which is a lot of studios, you know, they like their personal, you know, communities that they interface with just aren't diverse. So they literally are clueless as to how to like tap into those like diverse communities. So I feel like all different types of groups, including the Composers Diversity Collective, other groups for like writers and directors, cinematographers, they all need to advocate for just like minority voices to like get those names on those lists for hiring, you know? It's like all of us combined or we have to keep pushing. Right. Yeah. And there is, again, progress to not to, to give people hope. I mean, there, there's like the Universal Composers oh, yeah. <laughs> Initiative. There's actually, sorry, I'm blanking on a bunch now. Jeez. There's so many things that I would Chris Beck, CSAC's program. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Did you say the Universal one? I can't remember. You... The Universal one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a few. Uh... <laughs> But yeah, I think we're kind of now just hitting a point where it's like people realize it's apparent. And I think, you know, although I say all of this as and kind of like go on and on about it, (laughs) I'm like a very like happy person. (laughs) And it's like a really interesting challenge to have this, you know, alongside everything that we do and I'm really passionate about. It's just like the reality of things. But and I think there's a lot of room for diverse voices, you know. Especially now, I feel like this is the time to continue pushing and just continuing to have these conversations to like, and you hope that, you know, the people that need to hear them, hear them. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, I always uh, might move on to the uh, the final segment for the podcast. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's a segment called Tech Talk, where I list off a tech topic and you say as much or as little as you want about it. <laughs> okay. The first one we have here is DAW. Okay. Uh, I am a big fan of Logic. I love it. I've been using it for years. Like my first DAW that I used was a digital performer, but I quickly switched to Logic. <laughs> and yeah, it's great. Cool. Next, we've got uh, electric guitar. Yay, that's my favorite. Um, I actually need to buy a new one, but I really love um, 
Clarity Ball is pretty amazing. Fender's amazing. Uh, I love it. It's St. Vincent's, one of my favorite guitar, <laughs> electric guitars, female electric guitars. Do you um, have like the St. Vincent model? Oh, I don't have that one. <laughs> I know I'm kind of apprehensive about buying like certain models that are like after or crafted by certain musicians. I don't know why. I think it's like kind of cheesy. <laughs> it's funny because I used to feel that way. And then I was also playing a Les Paul, which I guess is probably the <laughs> most signature guitar of all time. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's true. Um, but yeah, I feel like if they're doing it, I should just customize my own guitar. <laughs> <laughs> what would be your 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 ideal custom guitar? What would be my ideal custom guitar? Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, I'd have to like really dig into that because I feel like it's such a mixture of like your amp plus your guitar. Um, right. I don't know, TBD. <laughs> well, on that uh, amp, do you use amps? Amp Sims? Um, I use just like my actual amp. Uh, I have a Fender. It's hiding somewhere. Um, Hot Rod. <laughs> And it's pretty great. It's a tube amp, and uh, it's really beautiful, and I love it. It has a really nice bite to it. Um, and, yeah, it's like a warm, like, vintage tone. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm, I'm all, all about it. <laughs> nice. And they're really great for, for gigging, too. Yeah. It's not going to break the back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, next we got Native Instruments Machine. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm pretty much obsessed with Machine. I guess just recently I'm kind of like a partner with them, which is pretty exciting. Native Instruments. But yeah, Machine sounds amazing. I love blending those samples with like, like for the kicks they have. Oh my God, they're so intense. They're so punchy. And I love blending them with like a real kick or just anything. All those like uh, ethereal noises that they have, they're just really awesome. And they do so much. It's like thousands of sounds. And I'm just always so excited when I hear something else. But yeah, I'm a huge, huge fan. Oh, I think that's that's it, actually. That's all we got here. Any other bits of gear, though, that you've been using recently? Um, Let me think for a second. Oh, I just bought a mandolin. <laughs> um, I'm really excited about it. It's an Eastman. It has a pickup, and it's really beautiful. I'm actually using it on this new Nike ad and probably on a lot of other things pretty soon. <laughs> Amazing. Well, you killed it here. Uh, don't tell the people what else you've got going on. Yeah, so um, let's see. I mean, yeah, Emmy season is like right around the corner. Submitted a bunch of stuff. <laughs> Look for my name. And then um, let's see, I'm also working on a new docuseries called From Cradle to Stage, which is uh, executive produced by Dave Grohl and his mother, Virginia Grohl. It's all about rock stars and their moms. Pharrell's in there, actually. Uh, the book's amazing. Yeah, and like Getty Lee and his mom, which is insane because... They're really old. <laughs> and uh, like Dan Reynolds and his mom. And a bunch of other Miranda Lambert, a bunch of incredible artists. And I'm so grateful to be part of it. It's something I totally would have watched growing up and been like, just so stoked on it. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Well, you're doing an amazing job. And it seems like such a short amount of time too. So Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Like I feel like I was in an incubator for so long. And then I feel like I just understood everything after that. <laughs> it sounds weird, but yeah. Well, Amanda, so great having you on and looking forward to seeing all the other stuff you've got going on in the future. Yeah, yeah same with you. Um, yeah, definitely keep in touch and I just want to support you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. 
The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.